Hey guys, this is Emmett. Welcome to Exhaust, your weekly podcast about why nothing feels possible. Today, I am here with Canada Mike. What's up, dude? Hey, not much, Emmett. I'm just looking forward to um, getting mad. Yeah, he's raring to go. Yeah. <laughs> um, today, we're going to take a look at three different essays that both approach the idea of human development and human progress, quote unquote, from three different lenses. And we thought this might be useful because of the sustained critique of the conception of progressive history we're walking through with Lash on the Patreon. So if you want to get in on that, you can join. If you don't, that's fine. This is a total standalone. But we thought it might be helpful per the episode Mike and I did about modeling and Fireband to mm. have different conceptual models to toy around with, mm -hmm. see what falls out, see where the shortfalls are, and perhaps come to some of our own conclusions about a good and healthy way to view these things. Yeah, maybe not healthy, but good anyway. Yeah, yeah, maybe not. <laughs> so we wanted to start by taking a look at a piece written by the German Marxist Wolfgang Streeck. Yes, this was in, I want to say this was in New Left Review. Yeah, of course. Of, of course. course of course. There's no, there's no abstract because no New Left Review essay ever has a point that can be summarized in, in one paragraph. Yeah, at least not for a long time. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so this one is called Engels's Second Theory, Technology, Warfare, and the Growth of the State. Mm. And what Streak wants to, first of all, this is a little bit of like hagiography for Engels, who he wants to, I would say, like highlight some of the advantages of taking a look at Engels' thought. You know, Engels intentionally, right, lives in Marx's shadow, but he had allegedly novel investigations of the sciences and industrial development, and he was much more of a positivist thinker. So in some ways, like a man more like of his time, I mean, Marx was too, but there is a, it's like not surprising that this guy ran a manufacturer in England and he was into like positivist investigations of like certain things of society that feels very much a part of like 19th century bourgeois culture. And, and he had, you know, relevantly to this essay, extensive military experience. I don't know that Marx had any. But no, Marx had, Marx did not have any. So, uh, and I think, you know, that's, that's certainly a reason not to dismiss what Engels has to say about this up front, even if you happen to think that like Engels was a lesser. Exactly. So what could this second theory possibly be? Well, we don't know by the time we get to the end of the essay. <laughs> and neither does Streak. Uh, he tells us that it's more than something like a theory and then doesn't really successfully articulate what exactly the theory is. So that was a little frustrating. It's, it's deeply frustrating. And I think like this is, I, I mean, it's the kind of thing that like, I don't, I, I used to read the New Left Review. You know, I, I might occasionally look at something that's available for free if it's like by someone like I don't know Hong Fong Hong or someone like that but I I don't much anymore and a lot of it is this kind of 
it's almost like a like a formula where like a bunch of issues are raised and at the end there's like some like pseudo provocative question mm-hmm. but the essay uh, that leads to more essays right like yeah it's sort yeah. of it's sort of missing the the three steps of an analytic essay right like what did you notice what does it mean why does it matter and we get a lot of one and two and not very much three. And then three is sort of what's like, we should look into this further. I, I Yeah. And I, I think just this kind of like, okay, it's Engels second theory. And then he says, well, Engels has something like a theory and the theory. So streak, he knows what it's about and what it's about is the autonomy of the development of like military capital. You could say from the productive forces that are undergird the commodity fetishism system that creates, which is about class and is not as interested in states and it doesn't give autonomy to the development of like state industry used in the service of state military. And what he's saying is that like, okay, Engels has such a, well, he starts by saying he has something like a theory and then he goes on to like, well, like indeed it is such a theory. And then it's like, okay, so like, what? you know, what is it? And then it's just not there. It's okay. So I, I actually went and like tried to, you know, look at some of the, the stuff that he was citing from Engels. It's just like, I don't know what you're talking about, man. Like, I really, like, I'm not, I don't know that it's here. Like, I, I really don't, but it's yeah. a nice idea. Sure. It's a nice idea. And I think is an important, Streak's not wrong to think that that could be an important thing to have in your quiver. Yeah. I think we agree do. about that in a Marxist analysis. So yeah, he says that Engels' observations, he observed two developments. First, the strengthening of states vis-a-vis their societies through monopolistic possession of modern means of extermination. And second, the internal dynamics of military technological advance, which resulted in the formation of a social mode of extermination distinct from the social mode of production with its own dynamics of development complementing that of capitalism. Yeah, so so I don't know what the hell that is because a boiler is a boiler, you know, a boiler that goes in a battleship is the same as the boiler that's running your steam engine in the in the coal mine. Like right. there's there's <laughs> to the extent that there is autonomy in the development of industry around military weapon systems, it's limited and it, it yeah, like the, it's very limited. I mean. What was crazy to me is he brings up the experience of World War II, and I was like, I know Streak knows how America built up from literally no military and no Navy to being able to enter into World War II and provide the Brits with replacement ships. And a lot of that was just straight off the back of the automotive industry. Yeah. Down to the Air Force. <laughs> yeah. Like that was all made by like Ford. It's like GM. By- yeah, like I, I, I honestly don't know what he's talking about because it's like, okay, metalworking technology is metalworking technology, right? Yeah. Like once the Mitsubishi Nagasaki shipyard is welding in the 30s, a lot of things get locked in in terms of like what the Imperial Japanese Navy is doing. And like, yeah. yes, that's like, I mean, uh, like he, Japan is uh, like, does he mention Japan in this? Or is it, and I think it's man that mentions Japan. Man mentions Japan and Japan. Like wild also that Streak does not mention Japan, the Japanese imperial experience it's, at it's all. It's fucking crazy. Like, it doesn't make any sense. It's like, you know, the entire thing 
the basically like the Meiji Restoration onwards, you have the military running the industrial show mm -hmm. and like like literally having control over a lot of the ironworks. And, you know, in many ways, kind of like planning the way that many things in the industrial economy, mostly the heavy industry, is are the way that that's going to be arranged and the way that it's going to go. And so it's like, well, what what autonomy like that? You know, like that. Yeah, is, that was the you know, I don't know. Yeah, no, it's, it was, it's that, one that process, was the right? That, yeah, it's one process. Right. If anything, we could say that, like, one of the weaknesses of Marxism, and this has always been true and street gets close to pointing this out is that like, it's not the best for always understanding certain types of national conflicts. That's that, that is sort of a weakness in what's going on because it will it can successfully talk about the class conflict that's happening and can talk about the class contradictions within different sides of a war, but has a difficult time with war qua war. Yeah, and I, I I think again the the example of Japan is illustrative, right? Like, be, because you have this like almost immediate transition from you know feudal quote unquote society mm -hmm. to you know industrial an industrial capital society. Like, you can see the extent to which like you need like. The, the class element is absolutely there. Like you have to understand the Meiji oligarchs and all these kinds of things, mm -hmm. but like there, there, there's a layer of complexity beyond that, that like commodity fetishism isn't really going to get you to. And yeah. at least you need like an international understanding of like how, you know, the Japanese reacted to essentially having their markets forced open and confronting the reality of industrial production elsewhere, which is going to put all of their people out of business. Like it's, you know, it's difficult to like transpose kind of what Marx is talking about in the European experience directly onto the Japanese experience without some kind of like compensation for context. Compa compensation that it seems like angles can't provide. However, there are some important things that I think Streak touches on which is the way in which war can change the very formation of the nation state and the class relationships within it and can escalate its productive capability. Like, I think that that is decidedly important. I think one of the things that he points out is that like, yeah, I, he said this, I'm going to read this because this, this is one of the things that bugged me here too. As he says, after 1918, had Engels been alive, he could have pointed to the swath of democratic reforms won in many countries, universal suffrage, trade union rights, collective bargaining, as well as to the Russian Revolution, which was certainly assisted by the strategic operations of the German general staff. As, Hangel, as Engels understood, wars waged as national struggle with conscript armies could serve to strengthen the working class in both the defeated and the victorious countries. The same was true initially after 1945 yeah nice and, and i was like yeah i mean sure but like, that went well like it's that went well that aside like <laughs> I, I mean I'd, I'd even be able to say like okay whatever like yeah. fine yeah have yeah that. fine fine right yeah because like true i mean look at napoleon and like what the officer corps allows young men to do and you know all of these things yeah fair right? enough fair but my first thought was like, is this really any different from the fact that Athens had to extend the franchise to fully man their naval fleet? 
Yeah. Good you point. know, like war has that ability. Like if you need, if you, okay, let me put it in just like the dumbest terms possible. You want to do big project. War is a big project. Mm-hmm. You're going to, that's going to require a lot of work. You're going to have a lot of people that need to be involved in that. If you don't have ready access to slaves, chattel or not, you're going to have other problems. And that is going to be, and you're going to have this problem whether or not you have, by the way, like slaves to do things. But yes, slaves, notoriously shitty troops, obviously. So. Yeah, obviously. <laughs> but, you know, and not, anyway, I'm not going to fucking get into that. <laughs> but the, the point I'm going to say is you need to figure out how to spread out upsides and downsides. Yeah. And you need to come up with incentives to get people fucking involved in what you're doing. Yeah. So it tends to be the case that if you're going to go to war, you have to offer people something for doing that. That's always been true. There is nothing special about capitalism or, you know, progress, whatever the we're calling it, where that happens. The rights might look different. The benefits might look different, but they're almost always there. Oftentimes the people at the very bottom who do the fighting get totally fucked, but maybe the officer corps does well or what, you know what I mean? Like, yeah, there are different trade-offs, different incentives. We can look at basically any of these things. That's always going to be true for a big project. War is one of those big projects. We can take a look at like you know, I don't know, the building out of the Roman aqueducts or anything, right? Yeah, like, or, okay. or Roman troops themselves who were right. know, given all kinds of incentives to, to fight. Yep, exactly. Yeah. Well, the story Taleb likes to tell about the Roman engineers and architects who are forced to sleep below the parts of the aqueduct they're creating <laughs> with their families. <laughs> like, Is that true? Yeah. Wow. So th <clears throat> because that we way they wouldn't that. fuck it up. Yeah. They had skin in the game. Why did why did we stop doing it? Exactly. This? That's his point. And that's the idea of there being like appropriate upsides and downsides that have to be distributed and shared. Yeah. In some proportion in order to achieve something big. That's just yeah. like an organizational principle for doing a project. Yeah, and but I I, I guess the the I, I took a little bit of offense to that just just the the idea that it was like okay, like World War II bought the New Deal kind of thing like this was like a revolutionary victory. It's just like come on, man. Like I don't I don't know. This is just like it, it just I, I think I think his claim is more modest than that. Yeah, I okay. think he's saying that it's demonstrably true that in many of the countries, win or lose, because if he just said winners, that'd be different. But win or lose. Lots of trade unions and stuff won things during and out of that conflict. Yeah. Okay. Fair enough. Fair enough. I mean, fair enough, Wolfgang. Yeah. Got me there. I don't think he's so sloppy <laughs> as to do that. Like, he's not a dummy, right? Yeah. Like, no, he's not. Because he does have some fascinating points towards the end where he talks about, like, you know, the way drones have changed war, but also have like repatterned the military capacities of the state and have has its own like contracting market. I was like, okay, this sounds more like your theory than angles. And this is like more interesting than any of the angles. Yeah, honestly, I I, yeah, I would have much rather <laughs> he just, yeah. I was like, you should have just done that, man. Like, that's what I want to yeah. hear. Just that's play the right. fucking hits, bro. Dr. Streak, if you're listening. <laughs> <laughs>
Yeah, please. But anyway, so that that's one way to look at it. And one of the ways is to see this is the real like storm and steel like way to think about like fucking the development of countries. Yeah, you know, and there's war increases their productive capacities. It allows them to do other big or great things. It incorporates people into the whole of the society. This is why you hear people say, oh, like we need another war or some crazy shit like that. Or like the American nostalgia for World War II has a lot to do with the vision of togetherness, but also the productive cap- capacities that we harnessed then. And, right. and the destruction of other productive capacities in a way that made them supreme, like made, made yeah. your own productive. Yeah, I, I think, I mean, a, a lot of that, so what uh, it's like you could broken windows fallacy your way into national greatness is sort of like the yeah I, well and i mean if you look at the second world war and you're like trying to draw lessons from that it's not surprising that some people like maybe we need to do that again but i, I yeah i mean i i think for me like so the word that i used to describe this is thermomilitarism which mm-hmm. I've been sending sentence fragments to emma and john it's <laughs> true for last couple of years. But I, I, I think like for me, like I go back to Japan over and over and over because we have so much more data there and it's so much more recent. So like everything's just documented. Yeah, those motherfuckers kept records. Yeah, they, they did. And like many of them are in the English language literature. Like, I, I mean, I honestly wish that I had, you know, been more of a weeb and like actually learned to speak Japanese because I, I would like to read you know, many of the the documents that have not been translated. Like, if you can believe it, the like the Japanese official military account of the Second World War has not been translated into English. Senshi Sosho, yeah, it's it's absurd. So anyway, but the the data there are are all there. Like, we have like a lot of the contemporary documentation in terms of like what were the politics, like what were people saying, what were they writing, what were they thinking, you know, what were they doing, and you know, it's it's very clear that everyone is conscious of the fact that like. Japan as a nation will not be able to resist colonial uh, domination if it doesn't industrialize immediately, right? Like Mm -hmm. that's, they know that and they set this process in motion, you know, under the auspices of, of a state, at least in part, but using a capital class that's formed in the, in the Meiji restoration kind of, you know, adjudicated through a lot of fighting with the the former Sam. And, you know, there's this like inexorable feeling to the history once you see it. Like once you see those steam engines going in to Japanese coal mines and you know that their efficiency is going to start like skyrocketing and you see it and you see mm-hmm. that the coal production coming and you see them importing like more and more metalworking technology and all of these kinds of things and getting very interested in shipping. And then they, there's more and more demand domestically for fossil fuels and then for oil and there's the military demand for oil. And it's just this like inexorable thing, the invasions of China, you know, the IGA really like running policy and just like the, really the the IGA really changing certain class dynamics within Japan because the officer corps had intense paternal feelings for their young recruits who were poor and from places that the officer corps had would never have been to and when they found out the way that many of these poor men who were suddenly in their care were treated or lived their lives or what would happen to those young men's sisters being poor 
like young girls and women in fishing villages, they were outraged by the decadence of the people above them, which really created interesting tensions within the Japanese as the IGA gained power. Yeah, yeah. And and there's tons of interesting history here. I mean, a lot of it's been written, you know, the, the role of like, you know, political violence specialists in Japanese history is very interesting and can't be easily you know, kind of encapsulated in, in sort of like a class reductionist formula or anything like that. So, I mean, I, mm-hmm. I don't know. I mean, there, there's a lot to be investigated there, but I think for me, like the important point is really that like, this is one kind of continuous process. And like, I'm really not sure that like a theory of like the autonomy of military state capital development is necessary or warranted or like makes any sense in light of like this history. And I, like, I just, like, I would like to know what that would be for other than publishing in it. Like what, just what would you do with it other than publishing in it? Well, one of the things, I mean, again, this is where I could imagine having a very specific rather than general frame, right? Where you'd want to take out a specific state formation and how its relationship to its productive capabilities and its military have changed in some sort of recombinatory process over time. That's where it starts to make sense and feel exciting by the time we get to the end of the streak. And he's talking about yeah. warfare and how that works. And I was like, oh, okay. Like, I could see how this would be useful for looking at the United States right now. And maybe taking a look at the last few decades. And that's fine. But as a general theory, this does not work. Yeah, I, I think that's where I'm at with it. Like, I mean, we just have like a, a really clear kind of counterexample in recent memory that's like just super well documented and doesn't seem to support much of this. So, yeah, like, as we, I mean, we have two, gonna... right? And they're sort of spot welded together because of Park Chung Hee's. Yeah, 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 fair enough. I mean, they come they're... up in the IJA system in Manchuria, and that's South yeah. Korea, right? Yeah, like, sure. The chables were like not that different than like some of the other industrial cartel stuff that was happening. Yeah, yeah, Japan. yeah. No, I, I, yeah, I'm really, and and that there's good reasons to use it anyway. Yeah, so we'll move on from that yeah. to the constable. So I enjoyed the constable only because he BTFOs economists very hard in a way that I think is pretty successful. Whether or not everything he says in this lecture. Holds up is something that we're going to talk about, but this is called Energy, Entropy, and Theory of Wealth. This is a lecture that he gave on the 11th of February, 2016 at Newcastle University. So the general point of this lecture to me seems to be that Constable somehow, like me, frankly, finds himself in energy world and totally baffled by the way that economists and policymakers talk about energy where they're like well yeah it's only like four or five percent of a business's expenditures so like it's not that big a deal right or he'll say he has this funny example where he says the upfront costs of more expensive energy one third of those will be directly absorbed by consumers. And then he says, as he's talking to a reporter and as they're basically hanging up the phone, 
he says. <laughs> but they will be secondarily hit by the other two-thirds of that policy because, as friend of mine Isaac Orr over at the Center of the American Experiment likes to say, energy is the secret ingredient in everything. Yeah. Yeah. That's the point. So I think Constable's a little tendentious here. He maybe goes a little bit over too much, but wants to make a case for a type of thermoeconomics. Yeah. And I, I, so it, the, this piece is a little bit odd because he's clearly aware of, like, he, he references energy, return on energy invested, which is a specific thermoeconomic concept, which is, you know, like widely used in the ecological economics literature, life cycle literature, other kinds of things. And I, so it's, like uh, th that was one thing for me because it's like okay yeah like some you know neoclassicals or whatever like totally uninterested in physics maybe but like very few of them will deny like that there are some physical constraints so and like ecological economics is a subfield of economics right? so, so here I here's i want to provide a little bit of context yeah here. sure 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 because i don't know who this guy is so the, him being british is really important yeah i noticed that and that's not just because he uses only British. First of all, this is at a British institution and he's a Brit and he gives only British examples. All of the shit that's wrong with the American grid, the Brits did first. Yeah, right. They took one look at what was happening in America under Reagan. And this one guy under Thatcher was like, he's not going far enough. He's too cucked by regulated utilities we must create a market auction house framework for electricity. So I have a feeling that successive generations of neoclassical econo economists come up in England, very inspired by the Thatcher government, walk into positions advising people who come out of the Thatcher government. We can see how this creates a context that's a little bit different from America's where we have those elements in Texas, which is based off of their ERCOT grid is based off of the UK grid directly and California and the other ISOs. But importantly, America is energy sovereign for the most part, right? There's a little gap there where we don't have the same oil production, but then after the shale boom, we really become energy sovereign in a different way in the early 2000s. That is going to have a huge impact on how American neoclassical econ economists come out of their institutions thinking about what energy means and how to value it. Yeah. Uh, especially because some of those guys end up working, especially for Republican politicians Yeah, who have great relationships with the fossil fuel industry. Yeah. Right. I mean, I, I think part of what I'm reacting to there is just because it, it, so this is for the listeners, this is a transcript of a talk rather than like a, an article. So, yeah. I, I mean, he's not he's not really able to cite within this, but I, I, I might have liked to see a little bit more acknowledgement that like this is not his idea. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. like because basically what he's saying is that, OK, and I really I really like this point that the ontology of economics is determined in advance by the data collection of actors who have, you know, economic motivations and aren't necessarily 
like collecting all of the the important parameters that you might want to measure if you have like a model of the economy or something like that. Okay, yeah, that's good. And like you know, basically he goes on to say, well, like the fundamental problem is that like we don't have a way to relate price dynamics and price action in markets to underlying physical constraints or like just like energy transformation, like stuff like this. And it's like, yeah, like that's true. That's why that's the field of thermoeconomics. Yes, that's yeah. what it's for. <laughs> like, why don't you just say like people have been studying this, they call it thermoeconomics. <laughs> but anyway, so possibly just because of like, you know, the, the audience, but it, you know, it was, it was a little bit weird to me actually, just because like, I was thinking to myself, uh, like, you know, the oil drum was a sort of like a peak oil discussion site for like petroleum engineers and like people who are like interested in that kind of stuff, like mining geologists, people that opened in like 2005. And I remember like I was going there in like 2008, 2009. And like someone who posted something like this as like a, like a piece would have been, it, it just, people would have been like, this is like impossibly simple-minded. Like, so it's just, it's a little bit odd that there's just like no kind of recognition of like, th this has been like a, like a big field of discussion for a long time among like industry professionals. Like I just, I don't but, know. But, but that's part of the problem. If you go, so I did some looking, I was like, okay, how many books are there on thermoeconomics on Amazon? Let's say very yeah. few. Yeah. Probably. Yeah. Probably on a couple. Right? A lot of this stuff stays within the industry. Yeah. It's not even necessarily explored by the academy. That's right? true. It exists by within large energy producers and consumers who have the bankroll and the need for people to hash this out. Yeah, that's I, I think that's fair enough. I mean, yeah, it's it's definitely not necessarily going to be familiar to people. It wasn't familiar to me when I read this, and yeah, I had already yeah. been in energy for a little bit. Yeah. I was like, oh yeah, like duh. Yeah. You know. When I was reading this, I thought, oh, okay, so this is, for me, it started to become this moment. Like I read this a few months ago and yeah. it really started to shift my thinking away from how I thought about what the industrial revolution was. Because he makes a very provocative case that, yeah, that nice little hockey stick graph what people love to share, you know, of just... Which is what the industrial revolution did, he says, is also just 5% compound interest on thermal accumulation in terms of ability to do work. Yeah. I'm not saying that graph is correct. <laughs> I'm not saying that graph is correct. This, this, this made me annoyed, to be honest, especially because he goes after Toynbee, like, in my opinion, just like totally illegitimately. Like, I just don't. Mm -hmm. it, it, but so he goes after trying to be the way that man goes after God, but we'll get to that when we get to that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. So I, I, I mean, his so his argument here, as I understand it, is that the industrial revolution was not a revolution. Like, and it, mm -hmm. it, basically what this represents is the, you know, if you have a, an exponential growth model, what you're looking at is simply the right side of that curve as it, you know, asymptotically approaches infinite growth. And the, like the sort of flat part of that, of that exponential growth curve to the left, like you're near your time origin is like all of prehistory. And so he, you know, he presents a graph with a cut up X axis to make it look as though that might be the case. And then later concedes that like, okay, like actually like what happens is that there's a long period of stasis 
of, of like relative like no growth. And then the English bring steam engines into their coal mines so they can pump the water out. Coal production goes way up. And that's what starts the, the process of you know, incremental accumulation that leads mm -hmm. to everything that we have now. And it's like, yeah, indeed, that's what's called the industrial revolution. Yeah, right. Toy yeah. was 100%. And the fact that it didn't happen on the time scale of a like political revolution, which is what he's like implicitly asking for, is just is irrelevant. Like it, in a historical time, that was nothing. And like it was specific technologies that were introduced to specific industrial production. Yep, absolutely. By the way, if, if anybody wants like a masterful walkthrough of the transition from wood to coal, especially in England. Richard Rhodes, Energy, A Human History, indispensable. That sounds awesome. Incredible book. I'm, ju I'm just th getting through the English coal part right now. Yeah. And I mean, it's, it's accessible. It has good images of what these machines actually were. It's about 350 pages, which is not a lot for what it provides you, you know, and it goes from that transition to the, the Anthropocene, our era right now. That sounds wicked. I, I should read that. He's a fantastic writer, great style. So that's what we're getting out of Constable, which I think that's what I said. That why I said describe what he was saying is a little bit tendentious. Yeah, I right. don't. I just don't understand it. Like, why? Why would you go after the industrial revolution? Okay, so here's the to, thing, like... though. Here's the thing. Here's the thing. <laughs> right. This. This is. This is again. We have to. He's a Brit. Yeah, yeah, yeah. We have to recognize that. So one of the things he's doing is he's taking his audience down a peg by taking the British achievement of the industrial revolution down a peg. He's like, this is not what you think it's been. This is not the rapid revolution like a political one that you've been told your whole lives it has been. Here is another way to think about it. From our end, we'd be like, why would you say that? Now, there's also something that we could say is happening that I was sort of like reading between the lines with the context is that the way in which people will devalue or not devalue, but yeah, let's say devalue elements of the American revolution, like it wasn't that revolutionary from an American perspective, to make room for a different approach to considering what actually happened. Yeah, I mean, I I, I felt like just offended by this, to be perfectly honest, because I was just I'm not like, saying it's right. I'm saying that's no, sort of what's happening there. Yeah, and I, I, I can I can like I can kind of understand that. But like at the same time, it's just like you know, like, why am I here in Canada? It's, it's because of, like, the enclosures, the highland clearances, like, fundamentally revolutionary, revolutionary events mm -hmm. that change society forever. And, like, within one generation, my family was in a steel mill. So it's like, no, I'm sorry, that was, that was revolutionary. Like, we remember it. Like, like we said, so, like, maybe from your position as, like, a posh British professor, like, it looks like, oh, this is just all, like, you know, one, one process of accumulation. Like, no, I'm sorry. Like, there were specific crimes that were committed by Anglos, mm -hmm. and they're not forgotten. So, yeah, that's how, that's how I felt about that. No. <laughs> oh, I think that's a, it's a good point too because that is where like streak angles marx can provide something yeah you know, marx has a whole part in capital volume one which i should probably revisit 
where he talks about the metabolism of capitalism. And he's really sure. talking about the way it concerns raw materials and the interesting political dynamics that fall out of that. Yeah. So uh, that's a point in their corner, in my opinion. Yeah, no, for sure. And and I mean, I, I you know, I think like just the emphasis on primitive accumulation and that like these events are... are often singular and contingent and like, therefore, yeah, like there sometimes are disjunctures in social structures that lead to new accumulation dynamics. I mean, that's what Marxism is about. That's what however, however, there yeah. is an important thing to mention here. And it's how the way that he makes the argument that it wasn't really a revolution, I think is important. Part of it is that he looks into where does the phrase industrial revolution comes from. And one of the things he discovers is that while it's happening, nobody's really calling it that. That's important only to make it distinct from a political revolution. Yeah. Well, people which, tend to call those revolutions straight up. Yeah. Okay. And I think that's important. Now, Constable yeah. does some weird stuff with it, but he also does great work to find out that it was not until the latter half of the 19th century that coming out of a French thinker, Engels and Marx, take that term and start using it. Why is that important? Well, it's because that is part of Marx's contribution to how we consider this and to how we think about what happened there. And he wasn't wrong. <laughs> yeah, I just, I, that's my stuff. conclusion. Yeah, like he just wasn't wrong. Like, I'm sorry, like he just wasn't. He wasn't, yeah. you know, about that. He was using revolution in a way that's different than Constable wants to take him to make his point. In other words, Constable's abusing this point. Though the research he did, I thought was interesting and cool because it does help you make a distinction between what's like a productive capacity revolution and a political revolution. And then if we want to bring in the cap the military capacity thing in, we realize that we're actually dealing with a lot of complex interacting phenomena. Yeah. That all have different relationships with each other. Yeah. Uh, like, okay. So I'm thinking about that because in the Richard Rhodes books, you really start to realize how important the British Navy is for the switch to coal because they are yeah. really looking for, trees that can supply the masts they need in one stick. But because they were running everything off of wood, they started to run out of those. They had to do combinatory masts, and those composite ones weren't as good. That's also what one of the big ad values for the American colonies was. Yep. Yeah, there's not much white pine in some places still. Right. Correct. So... There we go. Yeah, and uh, yeah, I, I honestly, I mean, for me, I, I like, I can't overemphasize the role of like naval technology in in all of this. Like, for it's me, so huge, and it gets really forgotten. It gets yeah. really forgotten. Like, everything that happens trade wise has to do with naval security. Yeah, yeah. To this and, day, to this day, securing yeah. international waters, it's navies that do that. Yeah, and this is, I, I think this is uh, part of the American canon that's been kind of neglected, right? Is like Alfred Tyre Mahan, who, mm -hmm. have, you know, writes his famous volumes on sea power that nobody reads anymore. But, you know, I, I think really kind of formalizes the American thinking around this and gets some way to kind of a thermal economic description of 
like what is going on here. So mm-hmm. yeah, yeah, that that's notable as well. That that's kind of like a, an American. So I'll say I'll say one last thing for Constable here. Yeah. The important thing that I pulled from this also, and this is going to sound so simple when I say it, but for me, this was revelatory because it just broke it down really simply for me. I was like, duh, all societies do work. Yeah. To be in a society (laughs) means you have the ability to do more work than you would if you were just on your own. Yeah. Especially if you're the type of person that can like force people to do work for you or you have access to a lot of things or whatever. Okay. Let's add to that. If you have the ability to do a lot of work, you likely have access to a lot of energy, which means that you are wealthy. Yeah. And does does he, I I think he also talks about like kind of the maintenance of like complex structures that are energized, kind of like mechanical structures that are energized. Like he has some stuff in this that's really good. I mean, like that. You have to be able to keep it going. This is something that man talks about when he talks about the sort of Malthusian cycles of empires. Yeah. Where they get captured by (laughs) having to take care of their own huge infrastructural projects and booming populations that allows them to do more work, but also means they have to feed more people and creates lots of faction and class tension. Yeah, yeah. And and as you as you move up this technological ladder, you have to maintain all of the scaffolding. It's all still consuming energy. So it's not necessarily the case that you know, you're going to be able to maintain all of those parts of uh, the the scaffolding, depending on like the contingencies of what's happening thermoeconomically, right? Like, do you have access to the fuels you need? Do you have access to engineers who know how to build the reactors that you want or the mm-hmm. boilers that you want? Do you have access to good welders? Because if they're shitty welders, there's going to be problems, you know, like, so, you, you know, like the, these things are not to be taken for granted for sure. And uh, yeah, like are, are often not thought of at all. It's like, yeah, like who cares if we have enough like skilled engineers who, you know, know how to do something like put together a nuclear reactor. Cause like you can't, like you can lose that and like never get it back. It's true. Yeah. You have to go borrow it from somebody else and that's pricey. It's pricier yeah. than having it. If, if we can see that, you know, get on my old hobby horse that I never get off over at nuclear barbarians, which is the U S grid. Yeah. You know, Right now, we're seeing gross mismanagement and an inability to maintain something that we achieved. And we should be able to maintain it. Like, we should be able to replace power lines. Yeah. But we have some in California that are like over 100 years old or something like that, that are now just falling apart for the first time. And PG&E is like, you know, winding their asses and scratching their watches, not knowing what to do about it. Yeah. That's a problem. Feels like late empire shit. Sorry, don't want to say it, but it's true. (laughs) Feels like late imperial shit. Yeah, it's 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 been drifting. Rash is right, societies can still end. I'm sorry, I'm not doom pilling you. I'm just saying there's something on the line and your life matters. You have to do things that are important. You have to show up for work every day and you have to fight for what's yours. That's life. (laughs) Your life is radically contingent on decisions made by idiots who you don't have power over. (laughs) Pray, everyone. Just pray. It's it's going to be okay. It's going to be okay. You're good. Try to figure out how to do your civic duty. Pitch in. Okay. Well, that's a good way to bring us to man. Yeah. 
which is the most academic of all of these articles. Yeah. That still we brought in. S- still made Mike mad. Um, <laughs> man is what they would call in the 17th, in the 18th century, fond of free thinking. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so, you know, and, and man is, is certainly an accomplished scholar. And sharp as hell. Uh, this yeah, was, he's not a dumb guy. This is frankly a very good essay uh, or article. It taught me a lot. It made me want to read. It's like four volume shit because he has that much to offer. He corrects himself at the beginning and actually calls himself like shallow at one point. And I was like, hmm, good on you, bad. Makes me trust you a little more. I, I definitely like, I, I wouldn't particularly recommend that people read the other two, but this, this one's worth looking at. And I mean, like the, the stuff that I got upset about is just my obsessive things and, and not so much the overall thrust of the argument, which is absolutely correct. And like fairly well argued throughout. So. Yeah. So that argument. So, okay. So we should read the title of it. Yeah. Have have human societies evolved evidence from history and prehistory Mm -hmm. to which he responds kind of not all the time. You can't have a general theory of that. I'm sorry. Yeah. Which I I mean, like, I, I think he could have been much more aggressive about attacking the idea that evolution should be applied to like human socioeconomic like power development like so so man is like a theorist of social power right like he he mm-hmm. writes this is it three or four volumes I, four I have, volumes it's it four like volumes? 1600 pages yeah yeah yeah, yeah. I, I have the first volume I don't, I don't know i think i can pass in the rest of the volumes but like you know it, it is a good you know it's it, it's a well-researched argument he has this kind of like quasi mechanistic view of social power. And it's kind of divided between four sources, which are basically like coercive, ideological, they're, they're, they're sort of collaborative, like collaborative and one other. Isn't it just, <laughs> isn't, isn't it something like, um, it. economic or something like that? Like it, that it, exists in its own discrete category? It might category. be straightfor- straightforwardly economic. Like, yeah. yeah and, and in any case, you know, so that's, that's kind of where he's coming from. And, and like, he doesn't, there's nothing, there's nothing progressive or teleological about his view really. And I, I don't know. I mean, the, he's very, he's very gentle with the theorists that he's treating, I think. And like, he kind of divides Except for up. Steven Pinker. He's straight prolapse of Steven Pinker. Yeah. I was just like, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> like, I mean, you can, you can be rough with Pinker like this. Yeah. Therefore. But yeah, I, 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 I think, you know, so he, do, he divides like these kind of evolutionary thinkers up into different categories who make more and more extensive claims about like the extent to which like a particular cultural formation is evolving under something like a selective pressure. And so he takes us through really like a pretty, I think, grand tour. I mean, I, I, I don't know, like I'm not all that familiar with the evidence, but there's a lot of it that he marshals to argue that it's just not very clear that any of the like kind of very loose permissive criteria that he allows to be called like a legitimate evolutionary theory are ever met no. by any particular historical examples. They're never met. And the arguments about progress or evolution have to be hedged and couched within specific iterations of time. So the industrial revolution would qual could, if you could find one would be a great way to qualify because of 
just the sheer amount of thermoaccumulation yeah. that happens. And he basically says that. He's like, the amount of energy that you can harness during the Industrial Revolution is like just bananas. Yeah. Yeah. And and I, I think he does a really good job of sort of, you know, subtweeting Constable there. Like it's mm -hmm. I'm sure he's not, but you know what I mean? Like it's just so he he's a no. Very, interestingly, though, this came out later in the year in that same year. Yeah. Uh, OK, well, I, I don't know what the situation I'm not. But anyway, I mean, like he, he really makes clear the the disjuncture there and the extent to which like if you have an evolutionary theory, like you really want to restrict it to that period and not in general. And like the his his picture of the vast bulk of history is basically this kind of more or less static cycling through different kinds of organization of political power. You know, something much closer to like like I guess a classical Greek view of of politics. Although he has this you know anthropological like sociological view, and and I think he's. He sees those kinds of like mechanisms. And I, I think he, he clearly believes that there are regularities to history that can mm -hmm. be found that like reliably produce certain kinds of socioeconomic outcomes. But I like I think he's smart enough not to like commit too heavily to any particular scheme in any particular time period. He's like, you just have to look at the particular exigence that they're there that are actually there. Mm -hmm. Correct. One of the things that I appreciated was that, and this is something I was getting from the Rhodes because he's talking about how England used coal in the 15 and 1600s. And it's frankly like terrible. It's so gnarly, man. Life sounded fucking miserable. Like little kids, like wearing a big hat and then like nakedly climbing through a chimney to the point where they get like, cancer on their fucking genitals yeah yeah it's that spreads to the rest of their body like oh, brutal shit just demonic smog everywhere and so he points out man does that this moment that is seen as the instigator of all of this project quality of life and life expectancy dipped noticeably when that and, happened and indeed indeed with like agricultural civilization like he he actually did i think he explicitly says okay so the like prehistorical data is that like okay hunter gatherers are healthier because they're taller and like live longer supposedly and he's like i'm not sure i believe this but like okay if we take this then like there is a dip with even with like agricultural uh civilizations mm -hmm. and then like industrialism for a like, few reasons one their diet gets limited so they're yeah. getting access to more more but fewer kinds of nutrients yeah and then they're living in denser environments which, which allows for the proliferation of diseases those are yeah. the reasons he gives and, and and inequality like because the the yes local emir sultan whatever king is taking all the surplus so. mm -hmm. yeah right exactly with without a scientific project to embark upon which would presumably be progressive <laughs> so i wanted to actually just read how he bodies steven pinker yeah it's nice because he does it in like bullet points i'm just gonna read it because i really want to i just can't stand that guy yeah and not because... that we have any pink right listeners right it's and not gonna happen. yeah 
<laughs> but perhaps so he says Steven Pinker and Azar Gat, this is another guy who I guess makes a Pinker esque argument, but he sticks to just Pinker, see a steady decline in violence and the lethality of actual war through the ages, accelerating from the time of the 18th century enlightenment. Hmm, how convenient. They say that violence within human groups has steadily declined in present extensive data on homicide rates in Europe since the 14th century that clearly support this, although it is true of much of the world. In other words, where the Enlightenment wasn't happening, this was also happening, so you can't credit the Enlightenment. I made me think, what can you credit? That's, That's fascinating. I will focus on their data on wars, which chart the lethality of war from prehistory to the present day. Since I have criticized these at length elsewhere, I guess that's in a forthcoming paper that's probably come out since, I will here confine myself to a few points. One, Pinker uses Keeley's archaeological and anthropological evidence to claim that the first mode of production, hunter-gatherer communities, was especially warlike. But Ferguson has gone through Keeley's cases one by one, showing that only a small minority of them can be shown to have been warlike. Ferguson's evidence supports the tradition uh, the tradition wisdom among anthropologists that war increased with the rise of the state. Oof. Oof. Yep. Got to take that L. Two, Pinker accepts as truth the boasts of the rulers of ancient empires that they wiped out entire populations with millions killed. I did not know that he does that in his book. He's, he's I, I mean, I, he's either an idiot or he's unscrupulous, right? Like the way that he uses evidence is so loose. That it's, it's and man's basic point is like, yeah, these guys were bragging to scare other people into sh- subjugation. You don't want to take Genghis Khan at his word. He's Genghis Khan. Yeah. I mean, if you're remotely if you're, familiar, if you're doing real history, you're not taking anybody at the word. Like that that's the essence of the historical critical method, which, you know, like presumably a Western scholar would want to. Like not even Herodotus was doing that. Herodotus would couch that at least with, so this guy turns to me and he says, Egyptians come black. Isn't that weird? I heard it from some guy. (laughs) (laughs) Not like that's true. But like, I heard that from the Yeah, Yeah. Okay. You should report your sources. Right. Okay. Three, Pinker gives a list of the 21 historical cases with the highest absolute death toll. This includes deaths resulting from war-induced diseases and famines. They are drawn from all ages of human history, though no less than six of them occurred during the first half of the 20th century. That would not seem to support his argument. But Pinker prefers to use the relative death rates, deaths as a proportion of the total world population at the time. This changes the picture since most of the highest relative death rates were in the distant past when global population was much lower. You know, we love it Four. yet Pinker ignores the length of each case. (laughs) Fuck. You can't make it up, man. Relative to the global population at the time, world war two inflicted fewer deaths than the Mongol conquests, the Atlantic slave trade and the annihilation of American Indians. Yet world war two lasted only eight years, (laughs) including the Japan China war. Whereas the Mongol conquest lasted 125 years and the slaughter of the Atlantic of the Atlantic slave trade and the American Indians took several centuries. The annual killing rate during world war two was much higher than any other case. I, I, I mean, I didn't know actually that Pinker was doing that either, that he was taking like the Atlantic slave trade as like a single event, like a discrete 
It, I, I, it's just mind-boggling. It's dude. It's amazing. Yeah. I mean, that's pure sophistry right there. Five. The reduction in relative death rates in the 20th century was produced not by any war-related changes, but by a sudden explosion in global population. <laughs> and this one was my favorite. Six. Pinker separates as six distinct cases: the two world wars, the Russian and Chinese civil wars, and the Stalinist and Maoist famines. But they occurred within a 50-year period, and they were all connected. <laughs> Combine them, and you have easily the bloodiest half-century in human history in either absolute or relative terms. Yeah, I, I mean, what, what can you even say, you know? Like, yeah, I... I I mean, I, I, clearly, Pinker's is the is the worst representative of anyone with some kind of evolutionary quote no. unquote. No, I mean, right? Hegel but, and Marx have way more to offer you, and can talk about how barbarities happen in, in some way, and have some account. You might not find it ultimately satisfying, but God, at least they're trying to be honest with you. Yeah, yeah, I, I think Pinker's playing like Pinker's playing a different game than you know some of these other theorists that he's he's dealing with, who I think are. Probably a little bit more serious. Or, yeah, you know. because his whole thing. So I guess I should have said this at the beginning. His whole thing, his claim. This is in his book, Better Angels of Our Nature. It's like a six hundred page tome. I've read parts of it. I haven't read the whole thing. It's fucking annoying. The book, his writing style, all of it. But he, his claim is that the world has gotten more peaceful since the Enlightenment because of the rise of the liberal Leviathan. Yeah, definitely. I was just like, damn, dude, probably don't present on this book in India. You know what I'm saying? It might not go well. Yeah, yeah I, I, I mean, what, what can you even say? Like, if, if you benefit from it, that's what you'll see. And if you don't, you won't. So, yeah. I mean, I guess there are plenty of people. Anyway, I don't want to fucking get into that. Yeah. The, the important thing is here is that I trust man's analysis here. He's at least done the arithmetic, which most people haven't. Yeah. To his yeah. credit. Right? Man, man is numerate. Like, I've, I, you can prove that by reading his books. So. Yes. Yeah. The man knows how to fucking count, which will get you pretty far. Yep. So, the general thing that we're pointing out here is it is valuable to take a look at military conflict as a semi-productive because it's also destructive force in society that changes things that is intimately related to energy systems and thermoeconomics but what you can't do is take either of these things and make blanket claims that can sum up the human experience yeah and and i think you like i mean I, maybe a very simple minded takeaway from, from man is that like history kind of consists of an underlying quasi cyclical, you know, dynamic, which he thinks, he thinks are produced by you know, some, some set of mechanisms that give kind of regularity to this mm -hmm. overturning of societies. And that like really the industrial revolution is a singular secular dynamic, you know, that is occurring once, right? Like it's not, this is, there's something else going on here. And like, if you're interested in a progressive evolutionary theory of, you know, socio-dynamics, socioeconomics, something like this, then like probably that's the place to, to, 
you know, get your data from, because like, uh, clearly there's, you know, been this enormous, seemingly singular event where uh, like, no, we're at levels of social complexity, technological complexity, thermal economic consumption that have almost certainly never been reached before. Like, I think everyone agrees with this. You know, I'm, I'm even like super open-minded about this. Cause like, I think, you know, things like the, the anti, how do you say anti-kythera, anti-kythera, something like this, the, the, the Greek, Greek clockwork mechanism suggests that like, you know, perhaps we're, we don't actually have a clear idea of how technologically advanced or thermoeconomically intense past civilizations actually were. But I mean, even given that, I, I think like, yeah, it's reasonable to to say that like we don't really have any kind of clear ev- evolutionary quote unquote in this like very broad sense dynamic within within history that's producing anything like continuous accumulation of complexity or thermal economic intensity. Yeah, it's just way weirder. It's yeah. just way weirder. It's it, yeah, like I, I, I think, you know, John Michael Greer has a lot to say about all this kind of stuff and it's not academic, you know, and he has no patience or time for academics. And, uh, you know, he's just interested in talking to, to ordinary people, but, you know, like, I, I, I think it's, it's worthwhile looking at what he has to say about like the nature of our civilization, which is basically that like, you know, different civilizations kind of have different specialties in some way. And like our specialty is matter manipulation. Mm-hmm. And like, that's, that's the distinguishing feature of our society. And it's kind of like, rather than us being like Faustian or whatever, like these kinds of conceptions are like our civilization is the, the matter manipulation civilization. It's a global civilization now. And that really, it gives rise to unique phenomena that are associated with like our ability to move up that energy ladder and to assemble really complicated technological scaffolds. And that part is is different, but we can look at historical civilizations that rise and fall, and we can expect that like we have not completely escaped the recurring cyclical dynamic. Like there are still limits. Civilizations do eventually become corrupt and decay because of you know various factors, and it's very difficult to imagine this continuing forever, right? Like we haven't departed from the cyclical dynamic, but we are in a unique. <clears throat> phase which is characterized by this incredible accumulation of of wealth and complexity that's and when i take a look at this first of all it makes things feel both more and less unique at the same time yeah yeah i think that's good we understand that we are a civilization with particular gifts particular obligations maybe particular skill sets yet looking at the historical record, we are but a civilization among civilizations. Yeah. So unique, but not special. Yeah. And, and their, their example is relevant in many, many ways, not necessarily in like particular details, but when we look at the dynamics of, you know, the way that different social formations that Um, man identifies like he has a lot of interesting things to say about the relative democratic nature of um, some pre-modern societies and kind of cycling between despotism and more of a economic and social democracy you know like we can look at the historical record and and still draw a lot of like political 
moral, ethical, you know, and, and even, even to a certain extent, like social dynamics, you know, things are, are pretty different now in the sense that like, there's not really a periphery in the same way, right? Like he points out that like, you know, pastoralists are like Neanderthals, right? Like they're, mm-hmm. they're just like obsolete gone, right? Like they flourished for a while and now they're just gone. So the, which isn't entirely true by the way, but it, it, you know, it's close enough to think that like there is a uniqueness that still needs to be addressed. So I think, I think feeling that like we're not that unique, but there's still like, we have to identify what specifically is unique about this period and theorize about that. If we want to make effective predictions and have like good positioning politically, economically, whatever, otherwise for what we think is coming. And I think that's why we need to take thermoeconomics seriously. And I also think that that is why we need to read thinkers beyond our current epoch. Yeah, definitely. Definitely. And I I think you can translate lots of what has been said in, in previous times into terms that would be like very familiar to, you know, physicists and engineers, if you, if you take the time to do it. And yeah, I think there's, there's a lot to be, uh, gained by by cross pollinating as much as possible that way. Yeah. I'll just end it with this. We were talking about what it might be to lose something. I was listening to the news on my way to the gym, listening to I think breaking points. And one of the things they brought up was about the supply chain crisis. It seems to be easing, but it's going to be months before things can be said to be normal, if that's possible again. And Sagar and Jetty said something that caught my ears he said in vietnam when all these people got let go when we just shut down the economy people that knew how to do certain things just went and did other things and now there's a need for them to do those certain things that they could do but only they knew how to do them where they were doing them that's a problem yeah that's institutional memory that exists whether you work at a retail shop in the mall or a huge like state vertically integrated entity. Yeah. Yeah. There's, there's no substitute for know-how. And, and you're not always going to be able to maintain all of it, but yeah. you could at least not recklessly sacrifice it. Yeah. Because that is how things get lost and the, the wages for that can be high. And we can broaden that example, and man does so in talking about the way other civilizations have lost their ability to do certain things and what it costs them in the end. Yeah, for sure. Relatedly, to bring it back to the Navy thing, America like can't build <laughs> military vessels other than, I think, nuke subs anymore. It's just we- not churning out boats. Yeah. I mean, so... My my opinion about this is that nuke subs might be all you need, but <laughs> that might be a sure. different different episode. Sure, sure. <laughs> but it, yeah, it's it's certainly concerning, and I mean, like I I think this is the thing, right? Like, it, it, you know, for me, for a long time, I I mean, I felt like okay, like just stay away from like everything military, and like you know, having opinions about this is stupid, and like. You know, it's just, it's kind of like an intrinsically immoral enterprise and all this kind of thing. But, you know, I, I think thinking about this, like the thermoeconomics of, of like modern developmental processes 
and the way in which the military is intrinsically intertwined in that. I think you kind of have to like get your hands dirty a little bit. And at least because like man's all of man's work is about power. And, Mm -hmm. you know, he's he's that's what he's thinking about. And like, yeah, military power has to be on the table. And, you know, to bring it back to streak and angles, I mean, this is kind of part of streak's point, right, is that, you know, you need to have theories that incorporate that really dirty morally ambiguous world into a political and economic program Mm -hmm. you have some kind of political economic theory like you just can't do without some idea of what's going on there how those forces are related to development like could they be just like you know could they be brought to to serve people in general in some way like i you know you need to think about that as well i think Mm -hmm. absolutely So we'll leave it there. Thank you guys for joining us. We will see you next week. Stay safe out there.